Hi, welcome to Highbrow. I'm your host, Mina Lay. And today I actually have dug up a previous YouTube video topic I covered, um, my history of dieting video. And it's been over a year since I published this video, and yet dieting culture is still as ubiquitous as ever. So I thought it would be relevant and interesting to go back and revisit it, add some more information, have people call in, and just expand on what has been ruining the lives of everyone for so long now. I've made a couple predictions about heroin chic resurfacing. I'm not the person who coined that, obviously. Like, a lot of people have been writing articles about the death of body positivity and the death of slim thick and the BBL for months now. But I feel like everything's just been escalating more and more. There was a major article that was published by The Cut on Ozempic. For anyone who doesn't know, Ozempic is a drug that's supposed to treat diabetes type 2. It is a prescription medication, but it's become increasingly easier to get a prescription for it without having diabetes. And the reason you would want to do that is because Ozempic, uh, one of the major side effects is you lose a ton of weight because it virtually suppresses your appetite. I guess what was interesting for me to read in this article is like I assumed Ozempic fully suppressed your appetite, like you did not experience any hunger pains, but that didn't seem to be the case for everyone because in the article, they interviewed this actress named Allison and she says on Ozempic, you can eat one and a half meals a day and then you're kind of hungry at night, but it's not terrible. You can drink some tea with magnesium and maybe take a Xanax and get to sleep, which sounds awful. I'm not going to lie. It's fully giving like eating disorder behavior and I just can't imagine like only eating one meal a day and then ignoring my body's hunger pangs and just going to bed. That sounds so insane and it's just so upsetting that so many women and queer people and I'm sure men too are torturing their bodies like this to fit into a standard that's ever-changing. But anyway, for this episode, I'm really excited to announce that I've brought on our first podcast guest, Dr. Katharina Vester. She's written a lot of work about dieting culture, so I thought she'd be the perfect person to have on here as we go through the history of dieting together and measure what the repercussions are of said culture. So let's start in the 19th century. Most historians will agree that the late 19th century is when the dieting craze started. But that's not to say that people weren't dieting or there weren't like anti-fat campaigns before the 19th century. I believe the earliest documented public anti-fat campaign was in the 1670s in Europe. But it's important to note that back then and really up until the 20th century, having a little bit of weight was a good thing. Like thinness was associated with starvation, disease, poverty, Fatness, on the other hand, was associated with health, longevity, beauty. And so, needless to say, these early anti-fat protests were largely ignored by the public. It was then in the 18th century in Great Britain that obesity started to become classified as a medical problem, and this coincided with just a larger cultural debate on conspicuous consumption. For those of you who don't know what that is, conspicuous consumption is basically when you just buy things or consume things for the sake of showing off your status and wealth, not because you actually need those things. So like think of a guy 
driving a Ferrari in New York City, you know? Or in this case, if we're going to relate it to food, ordering everything on the menu, even though you couldn't possibly eat everything. Early advice manuals for gentlemen warned about the dangers of overindulgence, of overeating, saying that it was unmanly, ungentlemanlike, and un-English. And yes, you heard me, I did say unmanly because back in the 19th century, dieting was mainly a man's problem. There was also an article published in 1855 that argued about how being overweight was the plight of the upwardly mobile. This article was talking about how old money people, like people who were born into riches and wealth, they from a young age learned about the dangers of living comfortably and developed these control mechanisms to prevent them from like overindulging. The new money man, on the other hand, aka the man who was getting money for the first time thanks to his employment, he was at risk. The article said, The new money man has no other resource, no hunting or cricket to take up his attention, no lectures to attend, and the consequence is that beer and tobacco commences the day, and tobacco and spirits wind it up. Such a man suddenly finds all his energies going, his mind dull and enfeebled, his body weak, flabby, and bloated. So we can see that a lot of the 19th century discourse around dieting was mainly to push men into being better members of society and to get rid of their vices. On a more subconscious level, historians Keith Whedon and TJ Jackson Lears have both suggested that as the U.S. became more urban, fast-paced, and homogenous, people dieted or controlled their bodies as a means to cope with their anxieties about this new chaos. In the mid-19th century, there was also this growing concern that men and women were becoming too similar, like men were becoming too feminine. With the growth of the bourgeoisie class and the managerial class, there was now a whole group of men that would, in a previous century, have been laboring in the fields, but were now sitting in these very sedentary professions. And... God forbid they were getting a little fatter. The soft body was stereotyped as being a very feminine trait. Medical experts of the time touted that plumpness was beneficial for pregnancy and childbirth. Slenderness, on the other hand, was associated with infertility and hysteria. Silas Ware Mitchell, who was one of these medical experts, um, he was the inventor of the infamous rest cure, which was a treatment for hysteria. So the rest cure consisted of a regimen of forced bed rest, restricted diet, and a combination of massage and electrical muscle stimulation in place of exercise. When I talk about a restricted diet, by the way, I don't mean that like he preve- he wanted women to stop eating. It was just like restrictive in the things that women could eat. So One of the things that he actually suggested for women to do was to fatten themselves up with milk, which feels kind of icky and Freud needs to get his ass on that because there's something infantilizing going on there. At the same time, there's also this paranoia that women were becoming a little bit too masculine because women were starting to become educated. Women were starting to participate in politics. So now there was this like anxiety to further separate the genders again. This consequently led to a new fitness culture that promoted manly outdoor exercise and sports. Then, in 1863, William Banting published the first best-selling diet guide in the U.S., called A Letter on Corpulence. The guide was aimed at men, of course, and suggested a diet regimen that featured food associated with masculinity, wealth, and racial superiority, like red meat and alcohol, and required men to eat four meals a day. Banting was also a believer of this very, like, not true, not scientifically backed idea that uh, being overweight was a personal problem. It wasn't 
wasn't hereditary. And if you had enough willpower, you could will the fat away. As for women, whatever dieting advice existed out there was initially ignored. In an 1865 issue of Harper's Weekly, a diet expert complained that overweight young women could not be convinced to diet for anything, even in cases in which their weight severely impaired them, because they were only interested in having fun, sleeping in, and spending time with young men. The beauty ideal for women was actually at its softest and heaviest between the Civil War and the early 1890s, because plumpness was once again associated with very positive traits like motherhood, respectability, and sexual availability. And you're going to love this one. A text from 1893 suggests that women eat a third less as soon as they turn 45 years old. You hear that? Once the clock strikes midnight because their ovaries shrivel up and no longer need to be fed. We don't feed our bodies to uh, get fuel or energy for the day. We feed our bodies so that our ovaries can get enough fuel to create children. Oh, Victorian doctors. Believe it or not, there were even publications to help women gain weight, such as the very popular 1878 guide, How to Be Plump. Of course, it would be like a total oversimplification to say that no woman was dieting in the 19th century. If a woman did diet, it was done in private, and we don't really know because of that, like how many women dieted, but we can at least see from magazine articles of the time period, there were a number of women who wrote to editors asking for dieting advice. For example, in 1868, Godey's Ladybook and Magazine published a short explanation of the banting system. And in September 1869, Viola asked the editors of Harper's Bazaar self-help column how she could buy Banting's book in the U.S. Early women's rights activists also encouraged women to pay attention to their diets and also to start exercising. Rachel Brooks Gleason, one of the first female American doctors, even recommended her female patients to follow Banting's advice to gain more muscular fiber. And in an article from 1890, Eliza Putnam Heaton asserted that there is no reason why, provided she has sufficient willpower, a woman should not mold her figure to her liking. This brings us to another interesting idea. At the time, dieting could be considered to be a tool of bodily control, a tool of rebellion. Rather than only men being able to diet, women were asserting that they also had the self-control to do this too. And this may sound really dumb and arbitrary for modern day people, but at the time, like we have to consider the climate, the social climate. There were some women who chose to fast, and these fasting women were viewed as having supernatural powers or being clairvoyant because it was just so strange for a woman to have the same self-control as a man. There were women who had been fasting in the Western world since medieval times. This isn't like a new Victorian concept. In medieval Europe, these fasting girls were labeled with the term anorexia mirabilis, which literally means a miraculously inspired loss of appetite. In the book, Fasting Girls, A History of Anorexia, historian Joan Jacobs Bromberg explains the difference between anorexia nervosa and anorexia mirabilis. So anorexia nervosa, which is what we colloquially just call anorexia today, was first identified in the 1870s as an emerging condition on the rise in bourgeois families. Anorexia mirabilis, on the other hand, was a far older form of self-starvation rooted in Christian notions of suffering and service. Girls that were identified as having anorexia mirabilis were seen as miracles, as they were able to survive on spiritual devotion alone. So needless to say, these original fasting women were viewed pretty positively. 
The religious connotation comes from the idea that ritualistic fasting was a means to achieve spiritual enlightenment through asceticism. Asceticism means severe self-discipline. These girls often believed that prolonged fasting could aid them in becoming nuns or saints. In his book, Holy Anorexia, Rudolf M. Bell talks about how in a 14th century context, anorexia actually made kind of sense, um, since at the time self-deprivation was widely agreed to be holy. Holiness was therefore one of the few modes of self-expression available to women, virtually their only route to power. A couple well-known medieval fasting girls include Mary of Oines, and she starved herself of many pleasures in effort to experience the sacrifices of Jesus. She lived a life of poverty despite having wealth, kept celibate despite being married, and fasted for prolonged periods of time. Eventually, she refused all food besides consecrated hosts. Another woman was Wilgefortis of Portugal. She was a 14th century folk saint and was said to have taken a vow of virginity and starvation in her prayer for ugliness as to avoid marriage. As a result, she grew a beard and the marriage was called off and her father had her crucified. Kind of iconic if you ask me, minus the crucifixion. So going back to the Victorian era and, you know, as time moved on, anorexia mirabilis began to be viewed with increasing suspicion. The term fasting girls actually became a derisive moniker. Also in the 19th century, these fasting girls became a symptom of the growing conflict between Victorian scientific principles and traditional religious belief. These new rational corset-hating doctors interpreted spiritual fasting as irrational. So, who are the 19th century fasting girly pops? Um, a couple include Anne Moore. She was known as the imposter fasting woman of Tutbury, and she was a notorious hoax. <laughs> she was an impoverished laborer who had multiple children out of wedlock and very few options, which forced her to subsist on very little food. By the late 1800s, pamphlets circulated with trumped-up claims of Moore's inability to eat. Her story was then questioned by the physician Alexander Henderson in 1812, who disputed her claims of living for four years without liquid and five years without solid food. A supervised watch of Moore in 1813 uncovered her lies. Honestly, I do have to give my respect to her because that's making the most out of a bad situation. Sarah Jacob is a really popular one. She is dubbed as the Welsh fasting girl and she inspired Emma Donahue's The Wonder. She died of starvation, unfortunately, while her supposed fasting was being medically observed, leading to her parents being tried and convicted of manslaughter because Sarah Jacob was really young. I think she was like 11 years old. But, you know, even in the 20th century, there's still been people who claim that denying food and water is a way to becoming holy. In a more muted, acceptable level, there's just regular fasting, which depending on the religion, occurs for a short amount of time. Like you're not supposed to be close to death. But in 1981, this man, Wiley Brooks, founded the cult the Breatharian Institute of America. And Breatharians claim to subsist on only air and light. Brooks toured nationally with high-priced immortality workshops, getting close to 400 followers. But in 1983, all good things have to come to an end, and Brooks was caught eating junk food. He was supposedly spotted leaving a Santa Cruz 7-Eleven with a Slurpee, a hot dog, and Twinkies. 
<laughs> One of his co-founders, Lavelle Leffler, who later quit the organization, admitted, the truth is he sneaks into 7-Elevens and fast food places and eats just like the rest of us, except worse because he has to rely on places that are open late into the night. I guess because he doesn't want to be caught in broad daylight, not practicing what he preaches. Today, Brooks is still around, but now he advocates eating a diet of only McDoubles and Diet Coke because as he claims, these are magical 5D foods that are the only things that are not radioactive. This is a far cry from his Breatharian days, where if you actually look at his website, which is still active at breatharian.com, one of the things he writes is, after all, you are what you eat. But let's get back to the Victorians. Most women were not fasting to the extent of Sarah Jacobs, but they were still dieting. By 1896, the Boston Daily Globe reported that dieting had become the craze for women. And it goes without saying that uh, as the slimmer figure started becoming in vogue, the rounder, stouter figure started to become out of vogue. Katharina Vester said in her article on dieting in postbellum America, in this cultural climate, Jewish women, immigrant or American born, were often imagined as overweight, which increased the pressure on them to control their body weight in the attempt to gain assimilated middle class status. This pressure is possibly why the American Jewess, the first English magazine for Jewish women, published expert dying advice several years before other women's magazines endorsed the topic. Similarly, black women were also targeted. The mammy caricature was artificially fattened up in popular culture, and this body was also a symbol of revisionist history of a South that had fed and treated its enslaved people generously. Of course, people are built in all shapes and sizes regardless of race or ethnicity, but these stereotypes serve to prove how society deliberately tried to exclude Black women and other like non-WASP women from ever being viewed as beautiful in the popular culture. Even more explicitly, the most famous female physical culture organization was the Women's League of Health and Beauty, which was launched by Mary Baggett Stack in 1930 and boasted 166,000 members, produced a magazine, and ran over 2,000 weekly classes in the late 1930s. The league, which saw women as the natural race builders, that is a direct quote, advocated a system of rhythmic gymnastic exercises focused on the abdominal and pelvic area and aimed at a slim, healthy, and beautiful female body. As Katrina Vester writes in Regime Change, the obese foreign and exoticized woman was used as a contrast to the self-restrained and self-controlled Western woman, signifying advancement and progress, and serving as legitimization for her own demand for access to power. While the origins of dieting started in the 19th century, really, um, a lot of historians do say that dieting as this aesthetic craze didn't come about until the early 20th century. And what I mean by that is that in the 19th century, dieting was more associated with good health. But historian Roberta Said notes that the first significant thinness craze was between 1919 and 1935. This is a written response I received. When I was a freshman in college, I was, quote, on a diet that mostly consisted of getting blackout drunk the night before and exclusively eating cucumber slices covered in hot sauce from the dining hall salad bar the next day. Somehow, my little 18-year-old brain thought this would cancel out any weight I gained from the night before and was 100% fueled by my fear of the freshman 15. I genuinely think that the entire concept of the freshman 15 is the main driver of the diet and ED culture of college and lasts so much longer than the four years we spend surrounded by that culture. 
To this day, it's still insane to me how the number one advice I got from people my senior year of high school was how to avoid gaining weight in college, from women just a few years older than me, ranging all the way to my grandmother's age. Now, as a physical therapy student, I've been asked by multiple patients if going on a diet would help their pain, which genuinely is my least favorite question to discuss with a patient. To heal, your body needs proper nourishment and care, and women are so trapped in diet culture that they think losing weight is the end-all, be-all solution that can fix whatever is wrong with them. Oh my gosh. So I have a confession. I did gain weight freshman year of college, and I was horrified when that happened. Um, I remember like the first time I was aware of it, like the first moment I was aware of it. One day I put on these pair of skinny jeans um, because it was 2014. So yeah, I was wearing skinny jeans (laughs) and I could barely button like the top. And I just remember thinking these skinny jeans used to be kind of loose on me. And it just dawned on me that I gained weight. And then when I came back um, over the summer, my mom like made comments about it. Like people made comments about it. And I felt very self-conscious because there is this myth of the freshman 15. Anyways, I think that the whole idea of a freshman 15 or quarantine 15, which um, caught on in the zeitgeist like following 2020, I think all of that is really unhealthy because it stigmatizes the idea that bodies change. Like your weight will fluctuate. Um, in your lifetime and that's completely normal and by using that these terms and labeling them as these phenomenons it makes the concept abnormal and then obviously when you're creating all this uh, stigma around gaining a couple pounds freshman year of college you have girls mostly doing very unhealthy behaviors like you know eating cucumber slices with hot sauce after a night out Um, that's gonna be worse for your body than gaining a couple pounds. This person's story actually reminds me of this case study I read a while ago on Smith College. One thing that they said that stood out to me was this idea that even grandmothers were warning their grandchildren about the freshman 15 or the idea of gaining weight in college. Weight in relation to college has been a stressful topic for literally over 100 years. Part of this is definitely because girls, for the first time, were leaving their homes and therefore couldn't rely on their mothers to closely monitor their weight. At the beginning of the 20th century, it wasn't super popular yet for women to attend college, but one of the options that was available to them was Smith College, which is still a women's college today. So we can expect that a lot of the conversations there in the 1920s revolved around dieting. But first, we have to really understand what it was like there at the end of the 19th century. In the late 1800s, female students were actually encouraged to gain weight. And this is because it was essential for college women to appear healthy in the eyes of society. Critics of women's higher education claimed that academic life would destroy female health, and they used scientific backing, scientific in quotation marks, please note this, that using your brain would usurp the body's finite resources and deplete the female reproductive system of bloods, nutrients, and energy. Yes, everything goes back to the reproductive system. They basically claim that college women will become infertile at the cost of higher education and the human race would die out if too many women decided to get educated. So weight gain was supposed to show that women were actually healthy in these learning environments. 
One student, Charlotte Wilkinson, wrote to her mother in February 1892 that it was her ambition to weigh 150 pounds. So this was the late 1800s. By the 1920s, if we look at the letters that college students wrote to their families or their diary entries, we start to see that now they were focused on reducing. Reducing was the term for losing weight, and at this time, it meant mostly uh, cutting out sweets and starches, working out more, and not snacking in between meals. But of course, you know, with any kind of dieting craze, there were people who took it to an extreme, and uh, it manifested in very unhealthy practices. For instance, student Dorothy Dushkin wrote an entry in May 1922 saying, Resolved once more to cut down my diet. Betty and Fran's chief topic of conversation is dieting. It is extremely wearisome, especially since they are both slender. I shall try once again to exert my willpower. I'm not going to say a word about it. I'm not going to foolishly cut meals and starve on certain days and relax on others as they do, but attend all meals and refrain from eating between meals. And in 1920, college physician Florence Gilman wrote, Never have we had such a large proportion of seniors who are tired, nervously tense, underweight, anemic, with low blood pressure, showing a condition of depressed vitality. These things are found in students who have not been ill for the most part. So what shifted? Why were these students who 20 years ago would have been trying to gain weight, why are they now losing weight? Well, on a larger societal level, according to anthropologist Claire Cassidy, slenderness symbolized the freedom from want. The wealthy are able to switch the bodily metaphor of success from fat to thin because they do not need to worry about famine or infectious disease. They can go beyond the message of fat, look how much abundance I have, to a more etheric model. I'm so safe I can afford to ignore abundance. But it's important to note that most of these college students didn't write in their diary entries with this level of class consciousness. Most of them wrote about how they wanted to lose weight because they wanted to look better or because all their friends were doing it. With that said, a major reason for this dieting craze was men. Up until 1910, college was mainly homosocial, as in girls would hang out with other girls, have parties with other girls, etc. However, by the 1910s, students would bat which was a term that referred to groups of students and their usually male guests motoring to a rural off-campus spot to picnic. Early Smith students also used the term date to mostly refer to hanging out with a friend, usually another woman, but by the 1920s, the term date almost always referred to going out with a man. Historian Beth Bailey notes that dating moved courtship into the public world, relocating it from family parlors and community events to restaurants, theaters, and dance halls. And unlike courting, the goal of dating was not necessarily to get married, but to raise your popularity status. And to get more dates, you needed to look your best. And looking your best in the 1920s meant following the very thin flapper look and wearing the most fashionable clothes. But unfortunately, if you were fat, much like today, it was harder to find fashionable clothes, especially because couture was slimming down. In a 1923 interview, French clothing designer Paul Poiret even talked about his unwillingness to dress fat women. He said, We do not pay much attention to fat women. They are the infirm among the fashionable. We cannot do anything special for them. They have merely to trail along the path of la mode. Their case is not for the dress designer. It is for the physician. And ready-made clothing, which was becoming more and more available due to industrialization, gave women an idea of what their bodies were supposed to look like and where they existed on the spectrum of available sizes. So let's talk about the flapper. Margaret Lowe claims that before World War I, there was actually a number of different beauty ideals that women could 
fall into. There was the natural woman who had a curvy but not extremely hourglass figure, the voluptuous woman who had an extremely hourglass figure, and the Gibson girl which had a linear but sensuous shapeliness. There was only one beauty idea now, the thin, straight figure. And if you couldn't mold your body to fit into that shape, then it sucks for you. You may have been hot like 10 years ago, but you're not anymore. The flapper represented youthful modernity. She was slender, flat-chested, and small-hipped. And because having any of these features is usually a genetic thing, not every girl of the 1920s looked exactly like the flapper, but they at least followed the straight silhouette thanks to the undergarments available. According to Lowe, these straight lines signaled adherence to the new sexual codes of 20s youth, dating, petting, fast dancing, and freedom from parental supervision. Another contributing factor to the slimness craze was the development of new food science. Building on mid-19th century German research, American food scientists were pushing for this idea to choose food based on its nutritional value rather than its taste and appearance. On top of recommending people to reduce fats, sugars, carbs, and proteins, they were also recommending calorie counting. Chin Zhao writes that this emphasis on calorie counting was in part stimulated by the U.S. government's World War I food conservation campaign. The government was invested in conserving meat, wheat, fat, and sugar for domestic and allied troops. Because these items were calorie dense and the dry goods among them were relatively easy to ship overseas. So it was only after the war that calorie counting became a phenomenon for weight loss. You may or may not have also heard of Dr. Lulu Peters, who was an infamous diet promoter and who published numerous popular articles and books that recommended restricting calories for weight reduction. Following in her footsteps, numerous doctors also wrote to women's magazines and journals telling women that they should count their calories, not just for themselves, but for their families to keep everyone at the right weight. This is a written response I received. In my ninth grade bio class, we had a nutrition unit where the teacher assigned everyone to track our eating for a week. We had to use an online tracker that created a little pie chart of the carbs, protein, nutritional breakdown of your diet. And there was also a bar chart that tracked excess caloric or sugar intake. It was awful. Everyone started comparing their daily charts and posting them on Facebook since it was 2014, lol. It just taught us a bunch of pseudoscience BS, and my high school friends and I later realized it kicked off spirals of disordered eating for several of us. I honestly feel like this is a very common experience. I feel like I have some memory of my health class doing a similar assignment where we had to track everything we ate. I feel like this happened in middle school and I think I just suppressed it. Or if it did, none of us were posting on Facebook about it. That's vile. You know, I feel like a lot of what we learn in school for health is pseudoscience. I found this article from the Scientific American that talks about the food pyramid. The food pyramid that I grew up with and probably what you grew up with is the one that was designed in 1992. And that's the one with like 6 to 11 servings a day of foods rich in complex carbs like bread, cereal, rice, pasta at the bottom, and then fruit and dairy and um, vegetables and meat kind of like in the mid-tiers with a little, little tiny bit of fat and oil at the top. And this is just wrong because we don't need that many carbohydrates in our diet. And also not all fats are bad for you. So designating fats at the top for just like a small amount 
it signifies, it gives the idea that we should not be eating fat when in reality there are a lot of good fats that you should be eating. And apparently when the original food pyramid was being developed, the typical American got about 40% of his or her calories from fat, which is about 15% from protein and about 45% from carbs. Um, Nutritionists did not want to suggest eating more protein because many sources of protein, red meat, for example, are also heavy in saturated fat. So the fat is bad mantra led to the corollary, carbs are good. (laughs) And yeah, this food pyramid is literally why my parents were so insistent that I drank milk every day. And I hated milk as a kid. I was one of those kids who just sat at the table way past dinner time because I didn't want to finish my milk. And my parents were like, you can't leave the dinner table until you finish your milk. And I think part of that is because like milk takes up such a huge section in the food pyramid. But in reality, they found studies that um, compared countries where people don't drink a lot of milk, like countries in Asia, and countries where people drink a lot of milk, and there's not a lot of difference in frequency of broken bones or age of osteoporosis onset or dental problems between these two regions. So I'm continuing my anti-milk agenda. I don't think it does anything. Don't actually don't take that. I don't want to give health advice. Don't listen to any health advice I give. But personally, for me, I'll be pledging against milk. Calorie counting inevitably led to a larger social disdain for being fat. And the effects were devastating. In 1927, home economist Lydia J. Roberts said, In this country, the calorie is a familiar word in the vocabulary of practically every adult, and anyone who doubts the possibility of popularizing it should observe a group of 10-year-old children counting their calories. There was a girl named Dorothy who even wrote a letter to Dr. Peters in 1924 saying, I am 11 years old and weighed 136 pounds, which was too much. And for men, because I haven't forgotten about the men, most of them who decided to calorie count were doing it to gain muscle, not to like lose weight. So now dieting for weight loss was a predominantly woman-targeted arena. You've probably seen vintage ads of amphetamines being marketed as diet pills, and yes, this actually happened. Amphetamines were first introduced as medicine in the 1930s by the Philadelphia firm Smith, Klein & French, or SKF. In 1933, SKF created the Benzedrine Inhaler, which was a cap tube containing 325 milligrams of oily amphetamine base. It was meant to help with congestion and was available over-the-counter for the following 15 years. Fast forward to 1943. By now, amphetamines were used also as an antidepressant in the form of Benzedrine tablets. These tablets were prescribed to a lot of soldiers and veterans who were suffering from PTSD and were even carried along in U.S. military general medical supplies. At the same time, these tablets were quickly unofficially becoming a weight loss method as well. To give a sense of how much amphetamine was being consumed, according to a study by Nicholas Rasmussen for the American Journal of Public Health, By the end of World War II in 1945, over half a million civilians were using amphetamines psychiatrically or for weight loss. The consumption rate in the U.S. was greater than two tablets per person per year on a total population basis. Drug companies also began formulating combination diet pills made of amphetamines, diuretics, laxatives, and thyroid hormones for weight loss with benzodiapines, barbiturates, corticosteroids, and antidepressants for insomnia and anxiety side effects. These combination pills were known as rainbow diet pills because they came in bright colored capsules. These pills were incredibly dangerous. You're essentially mixing uppers with downers, which can cause heart problems. 
The thyroid hormones contained in these drugs alone can trigger heart palpitations. And meanwhile, diuretics and laxatives deplete the body of potassium, and potassium is crucial for keeping your heart steady. The worst case scenario is you die from a heart attack. While theoretically, each pill is supposed to have a relatively safe dose of each particular drug, some patients reportedly stacked pills to speed up their weight loss results, taking up to four times the suggested amount. In 1967, Times Magazine reported the death of at least six women in Oregon who overdosed on rainbow pills. You would think that any person in STEM, like any doctor especially, would know about these side effects. And they did. So why did doctors still prescribe these pills? Well, it comes as no surprise, I assume, for me to say that they were highly lucrative. By 1967, weight loss clinics were pulling in $250 million each year in patient fees, with an additional $120 million on rainbow pills alone. Diet pills were turning a hell of a profit. It wasn't until 1968 when an investigative reporter for Life magazine brought millions of eyes on the immorality of the industry. She reported her experiences posing as a patient at 10 obesity clinics. Despite receiving only perfunctory evaluations, she was prescribed more than 1,500 pills. In the same month, the U.S. Senate launched hearings into the rainbow diet pill industry following months of investigation where at least 60 pill-related deaths were identified. And while amphetamine pills tapered off afterwards, in the long term, not much happened because in the 90s, there was another amphetamine diet pill craze in the form of fen-fen. But let's go back to the post-war era. The reason why this era was such a profitable time for the dieting industry was because during the war, national interests were prioritized over individual interests. Nancy Gagliardi mentioned several factors for the diet rebirth post-war. The first is the rising middle class. Middle class families were rebuilding their post-war lives through consumerism, and housewives, which have been primary advertising targets for a while now, became the diet industry's core demographic as well. There was a lot of pressure for housewives to control their family diets. Food and weight of the family was almost always framed as a mother's responsibility, and in dieting literature, they're failing. Food was a way that women and mothers showed love, and it was also a representation of economic security. I lived in like an almond mom household, and she was very strict on what kinds of things we ate. It was always fat-free milk and like whole wheat bread and just like we didn't we didn't have a lot of treats. And so I remember when my brother and I were a little bit older, we would walk down pretty far to our nearest grocery store and buy random wheat treats and hide them in our room. Something we usually would do was buy frosting and just like eat it because we were so deprived of having something sweet in our home. Sometimes I remember we would even take sips of coffee creamer because we just needed something sweet. So I chose this response because most of the responses I got had to do with mothers. And, um, you know, all respect to mothers. I love mothers. But 
I do think there's like this tendency for us to derive our negative eating habits, dieting habits from our mothers because culturally mothers are the figures that are supposed to be taking care of the cooking and, um, you know, running the household. Obviously, that's changing now and maybe fathers will be more of a problem. No, hopefully no one is a problem moving forward, but because mothers are pressured to keep their families in check when it comes to mealtime and fitness and just health, a lot of our problems stem from our mothers. And I do think it's a little unfair in that sense because a lot of their problems had to do with their mothers and it's just like this like cycle of toxic dieting mothers. But also just from like a societal level, like I know in the 1950s, it was a negative reflection on you as a mother if your kid was fat. Even though we know, or at least the listeners (laughs) know, that junk food and being fat are not always correlated and you could be on a really healthy diet and it's just a genetic thing. But medical experts and the media loved and probably still love to demonize mothers for this. So with almond moms, I feel like they swing all the way to the other side of the pendulum and they really try to control what their kids are eating to a point where it just sounds miserable. Like eating frosting and sneaking coffee creamer sips sounds miserable. And I remember my parents were never like, we were never an almond household, but I had friends who were living in almond households and I would go over to their houses and I would be like, what is there to eat? snack on. And I actually came across this article from NPR. And by the way, I'll leave all my articles in the show notes. It's called Kids Sugar Cravings Might Be Biological. And in it, they talk about how children, like younger adolescent children, are just hardwired to prefer sweeter things than older adolescents and adults. And actually, in this study by Sue Coldwell, who's a researcher at the University of Washington, she and her colleagues found that children who were still growing preferred sweets, but children whose growth had already stopped, so around like age 15 or 16, had taste preferences similar to adults, which hinged on less sweet. Coldwell told NPR, I don't know for sure, but I'm very suspicious that the bones are somehow telling either the brain or the tongue that there is energy needed for their growth and signaling for that preference to increase. And also, other studies have shown that children are more sensitive to bitter taste and that sweetness can actually act as a natural pain reliever as well. I guess hence that Mary Poppins song, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So another reason for the post-war diet rebirth is that food technology and marketing strategies were becoming more and more sophisticated. The mid-century was the golden age of processed foods. Artificial sweeteners appeared just about everywhere, and consumption of it rose from 5 million pounds in 1963 to 17 million pounds in 1969. The artificial sweetener market also led to a booming diet soft drink market that was valued at $660 million in 1965. The third reason is that the media, especially with the popularity of the television, was becoming more and more powerful, and constant headlines and fear-mongering programs about the nation's growing weight problem and weight-related diseases were seeping into the public consciousness. This is in part because in 1959, U.S. insurance companies published the Build and Blood Pressure Study, which at the time represented the largest body of information relating body weight to mortality. 
If you want more information on the obesity epidemic, I highly recommend listening to the Maintenance Phase podcast, specifically their episodes on the obesity epidemic and is being fat bad for you. But in sum, the study was bullshit. There were not enough control variables. You know, people just didn't understand um, statistics that well, I guess. But subsequently, this idea that being overweight led to early death was leading to a public scare. And obesity was largely pushed as being a behavioral issue. An interesting idea that I came across while reading Nancy Gagliardi's article, and I say this is interesting because I'm against dieting, just in general. But she does mention that dieting is not necessarily like a complete awful thing. There were plenty of aspects involved in the dieting process, such as planning, shopping, and cooking meals, which resulted in a sense of agency. There's also social aspects as well, like Weight Watchers, which was founded in 1963 and offered a community space for women to talk about their insecurities. Before unleashing the whole Weight Watchers Pandora's box, I want to talk about AIDS, spelled A-Y-D-S. AIDS are tasty caramels for dieters. AIDS contains one of the most effective appetite suppressants you can buy. And AIDS contains no stimulant. So why don't you let AIDS help you lose weight and keep it off? AIDS helps you stay the way you want to be. Ads for this diet and candy were the first of the 20th century to use the before and after weight loss story template, involving the stories of real women written in first person, of course, and using emotionally descriptive dramatic language. This is powerful and is still a go-to advertising strategy for diet companies today. But the reason it was so, so powerful in the mid-20th century is because before this time period, women who were dealing with problems were told to just like keep it in. And especially for fat issues, a lot of women, like prior to these ads, were just not visible. Niedich and Heilman wrote of the social stigma for fat people at the time. You never see fat people. They never go outside. They stay home because they can't walk without getting out of breath and they can't climb on a bus. You never see them at the movies because the seats are too small. They don't even go shopping because people laugh. The market for appetite suppressants was estimated to generate $153 million in retail sales in 1960. And whether most of these worked is up for debate. Uh, if you watched Mad Men, you'll remember the relaxizer. That was a real thing, like a vibrating belt that was supposed to help you lose weight. Sounds like a scam to me. <laughs> so let's get into Weight Watchers and other slimming clubs. I don't know if the structure of Weight Watchers has changed since the 60s, but at the time, the business offered classes that gave weight loss guidance, tailored food plans, a weekly weigh-in where women would have to weigh themselves on a scale in front of the class, and the emotional support of fellow slimmers. The experience was, of course, different for everyone. I did come across testimonials of women who liked their experience just because it offered a time for them to address their own feelings and to get solidarity from fellow women. Other women, like a woman named Jackie, who was part of Weight Watchers in the 1980s, said that the classes could be a bit cringeworthy and it could be also humiliating and shameful if at the weekly weigh-in you didn't lose any pounds or you gained another pound. In the fall of 1967, Weight Watchers UK held a fashion show at Bentle's department store. It was a promotional event that included huge blow-ups of the models before pictures so that viewers could see how different they looked now. Leia Kent criticized the transformation trope writing for the book The Body Reader. The fat person, usually a fat woman, is represented not as a person, but as something encasing a person, something from which a person must escape. 
And it's important to also tell you guys that the slumming clubs had very not good rates of success. From a survey conducted in 1975, 63% of the participants regained some of their lost weight and 16% reverted back to their before weight. These slimming clubs did not care about changing the lifestyles of women, about raising their self-esteem and body image to prevent them from getting into these like binge behaviors. Instead, they just focused and prioritized this arbitrary number that was supposed to represent like premium objective health for all women. I'm going to play this clip from the Maintenance Phase podcast, episode Weight Watchers, hosted by Aubrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs. She thinks... Well, I'm fat and I need to lose weight, not, uh-oh, something's going on in my brain. Right. And maybe the solution here is a brain thing and not a body thing. Like, you can be alarmed by your binge eating behavior and try to work on that behavior in a way that is not necessarily about weight loss or about seeing yourself as a fundamentally failed person. And yes, there were a minority of men who did participate in these slumming clubs as well, but Bernice Weston, the founder of Weight Watchers UK, recollects that, Men frequently said they joined for medical reasons or because they were frightened when one of their friends died from a heart attack. Women were more likely to say that they hated the way they looked. Hi, I just wanted to tell an anecdote about my experience with friends who were dieting. So I grew up in a pretty affluent neighborhood in Southern California, and I was about 12 or 13 at the time when the juicing diet started gaining a lot of popularity. And basically that's just like, a juicing cleanse where you just only drink juice instead of eating food for, I guess, three to seven days. And my mom and all her friends decided to do the three-day juice cleanse. And then along with that, suddenly my mom's friend's kids also started doing the juice cleanse as well. And we were all, again, like 12 or 13 at the time. And I remember I went to the mall with my friends on one of the days that they were doing the cleanse. And we all went to the food court. And I was the only one actually eating um, while the rest of them brought their juices from home to drink. And I remember it making me feel like super weird and oddly disgusting about myself because I wasn't partaking in the juice cleanse with them. So I guess the dieting fads can make people feel like a little left out if their friends are partaking in them and you aren't, which I guess kind of shows the dangers of it. Yeah, I think one of the worst things about diet culture is how it leads to so much societal and peer pressure for everyone to participate in it. Even if, you know, you grew up in a very healthy um, home environment where your parents didn't program all these negative thoughts about food into you, you could still just go to school and then be surrounded by people who are carrying baggage from their own parents and then be swept up in all of that. But I can really relate to this because when I was living in Australia, and for anyone who doesn't know, I went to Australia for school. I was there for two years. And the diet culture in Australia was so much bigger than diet culture I experienced in Maryland where I grew up and in Canada where I was living beforehand. In Australia, I also was friends with a lot of girls from China and they were international students and they were also already very small. But when we would hang out, like all of us would just like talk about dieting and weight. And these were things that I had issues with, but were exacerbated based on the people that I surrounded myself with. And it was only when I moved to New York City afterwards, and I know New York has its own 
problems when it comes to the fashion industry and the negative body image that permeates that. But when I first moved here, I didn't have any friends who talked about um, diet culture or they didn't talk about it in a way where it's like, I have to be on a diet. And that was a really healthy break for me. Like I stopped dieting once I made friends who didn't care. So I think dieting culture can be very culty and it's almost like we find um, connection in this collective suffering and is not healthy. God, I remember there was so much disdain for anyone who happened to speak up and be like, oh, I'm not tiding or I'm happy with the way I look. It was received as a pointed attack towards everyone who was unhappy. And I just, I, I hated that kind of environment. As for my personal opinion on diets, as I've said, I don't like diets. And I understand that's a very like general statement because there's a number of dieting practices out there and not all of them are scams probably. But I think it's a problem that diets tend to mostly appeal to people with already low self-esteem. And I think if you go into a diet with low self-image, with low body image, you're going to be prone to developing an eating disorder. The National Eating Disorders Association even released a statement in 2019 as a response to the Weight Watchers app saying, in a large study of 14 and 15-year-olds, dieting was the most important predictor of developing an eating disorder. Those who dieted moderately were five times more likely to develop an eating disorder, and those who practiced extreme restriction were 18 times more likely to develop an eating disorder than those who did not diet. Also, like a lot of dieting programs, they utilize this negative body talk, which is just not healthy. I'm going to play another clip from Maintenance Phase because Aubrey Gordon just made this point so succinctly. People who engage in this kind of fat talk have like significantly weaker romantic relationships and friendships. So like relationships of all stripes are weakened by this. Weight Watchers is a place that has sort of systematized and participated in the popularization of this phenomenon, right? I also think there's there's a lot of truth about what Naomi Wolf has written about uh, women being overly concerned with their appearances. She's written about how American women, whenever they achieve greater status in society, there are pressures that force them to consider their appearances a little too much, which ends up distracting them from um, achieving economic and financial success at the same rate as their male peers. So yeah, food for thought. I'm Katharina Fester. I'm a cultural historian of bodies, fashion, and food, and I teach at American University in Washington, D.C. All right. So the one article that I uh, reread a lot <laughs> was your regime change article, which you wrote like several years ago. Um, and in it, you discuss how white women were pressured to diet in order to fulfill their role as society's natural race builders. So could you tell us a little bit more about that and if you found any other interesting connections or anecdotes between early 20th century diet culture and the eugenics movement since writing that article? So actually, dieting in the United States doesn't start with women, it starts with men. They start dieting in the 1860s to legitimize their interest in taking over uh, more political responsibility and more uh, economic power. Yeah, So they basically show their mastery over their own bodies with the intention to legitimize the mastery that they claim over other people's bodies. And it's in at the very end of the 19th century that women start dieting. 
coming from young women, educated women, women who are interested in women's rights, and they feel that they should start dieting to show that they have the same mastery over the bodies as white men do. It starts also with white middle-class women. It takes a little bit until uh, other populations are interested in dieting. We see this mostly in uh, middle-class women with an immigrant background yeah, who had families coming from Europe, that they start dieting next. And then it's uh, the 20th century where we see that dieting becomes a very broad um, self-control practice. And eugenics, it's interesting because um, there is this connection between the slender and uh, trim body and its effectiveness. And we, this, we see this popping up in the 19-teens, where there's the idea that um, high-weight bodies are ineffective, lazy, that they um, do not work for their keep. And it's the trim body that is uh, the height of um, civilization. I'm not sure that there is basically that the eugenicists take this up, but we start to see that there's a lot of taking control over high, high weight bodies, saying that they need to be reformed, that they are a burden to society. And there's a lot of um, self-righteousness in starting to control these bodies. Was there any backlash for women and immigrants who wanted to start dieting from like these men that first started because dieting was considered more of a masculine practice? It's interesting. So there was a lot of advice to white men to diet, but it never took really on. Yeah. So we see white middle class men dieting in the late 19th century. But there was a lot of leeway because a white middle class men hold so much power in society that policing them effectively or shaming them was not as effective as it uh, as it is with women and uh, people of color. So uh, what happened when women started dieting, the policing usually did not come from white middle class men. It came from uh, male medical experts and from other women. Yeah, so um, the early, very successful dieting literature targeting women that we have is usually written by female authors. So you reference specific articles of clothing, such as the corset, as symbols of that era's politics and body ideals. And I'm wondering if you have noticed any fashion trends in the later 20th century or early 21st century that are also representative of beauty ideals. I think the waist trainer is back, no? I mean, so seriously, <laughs> it's basically the corset in the 19th century is the idea that bodies cannot be shaped from the inside or through willpower, but they have to be shaped from the outside. And of course, the corset would be only one uh, item of clothing. We have also steel plates pressing down shoulders or uh, calf extensions. And we have all kinds of equipment in the 18th and 19th century where the body is formed by fashion. And this was still true in the most of the 20th century, where we have more flexible corsets, but there is still a lot of undergarment going on for women. Then it was gone. Yeah, so in the 1970s, the idea was that you somehow get your body under control and in the shape that you wanted to be. 
But now I feel spangs, waist trainers, this is all really back. And I think this has also to do with the impossible body shapes that we um, have seen popping up in the early 21st century. The, the bodies have become more and more fantasy. And this is now achieved with surgery and with undergarments that press the body in the right places. Another uh, article you wrote was uh, Bodies to Die For. And in it, you researched media and pop culture's influence on beauty standards, specifically, I guess, in that one where you discussed detective novels and like the ideas of um, women's body types in those. So I was wondering if there were other lesser discussed elements of pop culture that you think have subtle influences on beauty ideals. Well, so I, I think that pop culture very much is... Uh how we learn our beauty ideals. I'm I'm interested in seeing where pop culture is working against these kinds of beauty ideals. And I was surprised to see that um, detective novels for women, cozy mysteries, are often are a space in which women discuss their not hegemonically beautiful bodies. Yeah, so that often the very clever detective is a woman who has uh, a high weight body, but uh, it's the the murder or the killer is somebody who is very fit and uh, hegemonically beautiful. And we have a number of places where this is happening. Yeah, so there are independent comics, for instance, um, since the 1970s, where the female body was discussed uh, in different ways. But it's still it's it's so subtle and it's. Um, you have to really go and find these nuggets of resistance where other female bodies are celebrated as beautiful, even if they are not uh, super thin. And I know we have we are now living in the age of body uh, positivity, and there seems to be so much uh, on the move. Yeah, so when you go to a Target or a Nike store, you now have mannequins that are no longer a size zero. So that's all very promising. But on the on the same hand, you have TikTok videos where women are uh, impossibly thin and very concerned with their bodies, and this is what of course, most people consume most. Yeah? So these kinds of social media in which the body is very much controlled. Right. I feel like with these body trends, it's very much a pendulum swing. And mm -hmm. it, it does make me sad because in the 2010s, I feel like body positivity was really lifting off. And now um, I've noticed a lot of resistance towards it, especially because I am in like the fashion space and um, I would see on Twitter, people would say, we need like skinny models back on the runway every time there's a more inclusive runway show. Um, and it kind of reminds me a little bit about the, like the early, the 1910s and the 1920s when women were dieting as a form of resistance, I guess, because they didn't like what the cultural zeitgeist was saying. And now in a weird way, there's a group of women resisting against the body positivity movement. But I just mm. wonder, do you have an optimistic viewpoint towards dieting culture now, like even with the pendulum swinging a little bit this way with Ozempic and plastic surgery and liposuction? Do you think that we are still moving forward? I'm, I'm shocked to see that there's this big backlash right now. 
Yeah, so I also felt in the 20 and in 20 teens, something has really changed, something fundamental. Yeah, so women taking more power and understanding how their bodies are controlled. Yeah, so I thought this was achieved. We always thought you have to educate women just well enough, and then they would basically uh, do their own thing and would start to understand that their bodies, um, that it's more important that their bodies are functional than that they are beautiful. But I have to say, I have more mixed feelings now because we have so many uh, forms of technological intervention in what our bodies look like. And I feel there will be always this push that uh, women explore this more than men do. But um, at least I think that women uh, have a level of education where they can make choices, informed choices, and understand better what they do to their bodies if they go on lifelong diets, for instance. I actually read an interesting article recently about um, men getting plastic surgery to uh, chisel their jaws or to lengthen their legs. And I was wondering if you noticed any like pervasive diet trends that are just targeting men. Um, if you think that like a form of self bodily control is permeating the minds of everyone or just like mostly women. No, I think that there's. this is basically probably the major change uh, in this generation that uh, men's bodies are controlled almost in the same way as women's bodies. Yeah, so it's. I think that it's not as um, broadly accepted yet. Yeah, but social media and popular culture is so interested now in the male body. It started actually um, quite a while ago with the Twilight trilogy where... Uh, there was so much that focus. I was not where I was expecting you were going. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the first time that I noticed that in my classes, when we talked about the movies, everybody wanted to talk about the male body in it because they were also displayed. Yeah, so in different ways. But you could constantly you saw bare-chested uh, guys uh, uh, on the big screen. And this felt new. And many people have felt that this was refreshing and a change, a sign of change. And I always felt that this only means that we now control male bodies too. And I couldn't see that this is actually a good thing. Yeah, so we see, uh, so men uh, do not uh, easily diet in the same way because dieting is such a feminine practice now. But what we see is it's usually the muscle-based uh, diet so that you have to build up your muscle and you have to eat lots of protein. And these are also diets, but they are not marketed as diets, but they are marketed as uh, muscle build-up regimens. Yeah, so it's differently gendered. Do you know why dieting has become such a female, feminine-oriented term, even though, as we've discussed, it started with men to begin with? Yeah, so that that is um, easily to explain. And in, in the 19th century, we start to see this binary gender organization. So there are things that are female and things that are um, uh, male. Uh, for instance, reason would be considered to be a, a masculine trait, while emotionality and intuition would con be considered a feminine trait. And so and this, these borders between femininity and masculinity are very highly guarded in the 20th century to that degree that everything that was um, connoted as being uh, feminine was forbidden to men to engage in because it would uh, effeminate them. Yeah. So and that was something that could not happen. 
And therefore, everything that women would do or that would be considered a feminine practice, like cooking, cleaning, raising children, men could no longer touch. And this is, of course, changing. Yeah, So men are now more engaged in household work and in raising their kids. But for the body, it's it, it holds still very strong. Yeah. Um, you wrote a whole book, like uh, A Taste of Power, on the gender dynamics of cooking and gourmet food. And I thought that was also really interesting because I noticed that within fashion, too, where clothing is considered a very female interest, but then all the people at the top of the industry who are making all the money, um, they tend to be men. (laughs) But I did have a question about uh, cooking. And I was wondering if uh, you could talk a bit about the changing discourse on sexuality over the 20th century and into the present and how that's affected the politics of cooking and eating. Ah, okay. Uh, so in the 19th and 20th century, we start to see the, the gender organization of cooking changing in uh, a variety of ways. So one of them is that women start to become responsible for the kitchen. That's not necessarily true for the 18th century, where often men had certain uh, chores in the kitchen, like beer making or kindling the fire or things like that. So in the 19th century, kitchen, all kitchen work becomes feminine work. And um, at the end of the 19th century, what we start to see emerging is that this is not a duty or a chore because it's also unpaid labor. Yeah, So we need to have some kind of a cultural narrative around this to uh, incentivize women to do this uh, unpaid labor. So what culture came up with was to say, this is a women's labor of love. Women cook to feed their families, to make sure that everybody is safe, well-fed, healthy. Uh, and so that it's not only work that women do there, but they invest into their children and into their husbands, into their marriages, and that this is something that should be fulfilling uh, because it's how they express their love. And we see this really emerging as a discourse with the joy of cooking in the 1930s. (laughs) Cookbooks really push this kind of narrative um, on their readers. And the first forms of resistance we see in the 1960s with the I Hate to Cook book by Peck Bracken, for instance, where women start to complicate this narrative. The biggest uh, form of resistance against this heteronormative uh, narrative of cooking is when uh, queer cookbook authors start to borrow this kind of these kinds of tropes and said, well, I also cook for somebody I love, but it's neither my husband or my children, but it's my my wife and I'm a female author or uh, male authors who say I'm cooking for the person I love and this happens to be a man. So they, we have a famous example, the Alice B. Toklas cookbook is exactly in this genre where she is talking about her life with uh, Gertrude Stein in detail, presenting this as a marriage because she is cooking for Stein. Yeah, so we have these forms of subversive cookbook writings by queer authors challenging the idea that cooking is a heteronormative practice or endorsing this as a practice, as a labor of love, only that this doesn't happen necessarily between men and women, but also between men and men and women and women. Were these, yeah, so, oh, yeah. were these queer writers um, transparent about their relationships or is it more implied? And if you look back at like uh, 
you know, anecdotes, you realize that they were queer. Um, how common, like, was this knowledge at the time of these books? Yeah, it's fascinating. So in the 1950s, uh, the first uh, cookbook where Alice B. Toklas is openly declaring her love uh, uh, to Gertrude Stein through her cooking, she has these anecdotes where she uh, describes their life in great detail. She doesn't say that they have sex, but you know, so you wouldn't find this in other cookbooks uh, as well at this time. So she is talking in detail about her their everyday life together. And it's striking to see that many people did not read this as a sexual relationship, but they read this as these are two friends. She is the secretary of Stein. They live together somehow. Yeah. So, but everybody who was open to read this, so it's doubly coded. So everybody who understands that relationships between women can happen was reading this as a love letter to Stein. And then <laughs> after that, most cookbooks that have been written in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there are a lot of queer cookbooks, and they are usually very open and very outspoken. I have one more question that I guess I should have asked at the beginning, but I um, wanted to know why, like, what pulls you to food and dieting culture as, like, a subject of interest? Because as we've talked about, you've covered a lot in it, like, from dieting and to cookbooks and queerness and... Um, yeah, what is your relationship to the subject material? Well, so I think that um, as a woman, I got a lot of cookbooks as presents from my family over my life. <laughs> <laughs> and I never, I was not a good cook in my in my uh, younger years. So I basically read these cookbooks and I started to understand that there's a lot of uh, history and stories in there. And I became interested in this is how my first book, A Taste of Power, came into being, that I start to read these cookbooks in their cultural context and to learn how they um, implement gender, ideas of sexuality, and ideas of the body. But um, the more I wrote about uh, eating and uh, food ways that the culture develops, the more it became clear to me that these are all practices that somehow socialize certain kinds of bodies. And so now I'm firmly uh, established, uh, or my, my new research is firmly established within the body studies to look at how bodies are created. Why is uh, society so interested in creating certain bodies? Yeah, so what is the, the poll? What, what's the political agenda there? So I'm following these questions now, and I'm also looking forward to do this. I look at food, I look also at fashion, and uh, I look a lot at popular culture. So... This is how all, everything comes together then. <laughs> Are you working on another book or do you have one planned for the future? Yeah, so I uh, I actually wrote a second dieting article about dieting in the 1920s. And this is, of course, when dieting starts to become uh, a common practice in the United States, where we have a lot of people dieting men and women and uh, women of all classes and also women of color start to become in, uh, interested in dieting in a way that we haven't seen before. And Hollywood starts. So, you know, that's basically, <laughs> uh, that's the beginning of uh, big popular culture uh, outlets. And uh, my new, my newest book will be on um, advice literature in the United States, where I look at uh, advice in the 19th century, how men should behave, 
and I look at uh, underground comics in the 1970s uh, where um, female authors talk about menstruation and abortion and things like that. So what kind of advice literature do we have and what are their political implications? Thank you so much, Katerina, for speaking with me. Um, I really... Mina, it, was, it was a pleasure. Uh, no, it was, it was, it was a pleasure. <laughs> I, I learned so much. And uh, yeah, I'm just so, so really thrilled to, to get the chance to speak with you. And I can't wait to read everything that you produce <laughs> going forward. <laughs> Thank you so much. So um, thank you all for joining me today. I feel like one of the biggest podcast complaints that people have when they're hosting is that no one knows how to end these episodes. And same, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I'm just going to say goodbye. And if you want to follow me elsewhere, I'm under YouTube as Mina Lay. I'm on Instagram and TikTok as Gramolita. Otherwise, I'll see you next Wednesday over and out. <laughs>